Welcome to the Well Community Church Podcast. For more information on us and our mission to help people connect to God and to each other in every neighborhood, check us out at thewellcommunity.org or on our app, The Well Friends. Amen. Well, I got to say tonight, it was really good to hear everybody sing. So grateful that you let out. And Trevor, grateful for you. You know, we, we got the privilege to do life group together with our families and just doing life, talking about what God's doing and, and trying to walk out this messy process of life with God together. And so to share tonight with you, to hear you sing, to do life even together as a community is awesome. So welcome to the well. Glad you're here. If you happen to be a guest with us, midweek is uh, an interesting gathering for us in that you're kind of hustling to get here from work and then you're trying to sort of calm down trying to sort of open to the Lord, and we're going to sing a little bit as we just did. We're going to hear a little bit from the Word of God, and then what we do is we break up, if you're interested in it, into what we call open groups, which are just opportunities to gather around the table and talk about what you just heard, and if you're interested in finding a chance to get involved with community, you can come this week, not come for four, come back after. We're here, and we're, whenever you want to get connected, we'd love to have you do that. If you have your Bibles, though, we're in a series in Joshua. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 3. And if we haven't met yet, my name's Brad. I'm one of the elders and the lead pastor here at The Well and really um, encouraged to be with you tonight, as I said, and to open God's word. We're going to be talking a little bit as we continue in Joshua uh, about uh, the faithfulness of our God and the strength in which God goes before the people of the word here in Joshua 3 and then asking and answering the question, is God still faithful even to us today? If you were with us last week, you heard Josh teach and handled the word in terms of the story of Rahab. Just to glance up in chapter two, verses nine through 11, by way of reminder, here's this gal, Rahab the harlot, and she um, sees these spies that had come in to scout out the city of Jericho. And in verse nine, she says, look, I know the Lord has given uh, you this land, and the terror of you has fallen over all of us, and that all the inhabitants of the land had melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came into Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Uh, And we have heard it and our hearts melted and no courage remained in us, verse 11. And uh, any man any longer, uh, no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, for the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven or in heaven above and on earth Beneath The question I just want to sort of ask that sets up where we're going here this evening is how did she know? Like what did, what did she like turn on the TV and she heard news about this Red Sea crossing? Uh, did she, was she just like scrolling Instagram and just saw the updates? Did she get a push notification on her phone? How did she know? And what's interesting about uh, how she heard about this, there, there are three sort of trade routes that go north-south in Israel. One goes along the western coast. It's called the Via Maris. One goes right down the center of the nation called the Way of the Patriarchs. One is Transjordan. It's called the King's Highway. All three of those roads would have gone right near and through, most likely, Jericho, down through the wilderness and on into Egypt. And in so doing, they would have gone down, these traders, and seen the decimation that was in Egypt because they were used to going there and seeing awesome right? The markets were great. The Costco was stocked. Like everything was awesome. They would pick up their goods and services, head back up north, and they would trade. Only they went to Egypt and they saw decimation. They, they came up through the wilderness and there's this horde of people out there just stirring up dust. 
And, and they'd have been out there. Last time we came through, they were there, and we came through several weeks ago, and they were there, and we came through a couple months ago, and they were there. In fact, for 40 years, they've been there. But you can't survive for two days in that heat without water, and they're in the nothing. They're in the wasteland, and they're surviving there for 40 years. Who are those people? So you're coming to Jericho with that sort of story on your lips, and, and this Rahab hears it. And her heart, it says, melts like wax. And, and I just love the Rahab story in, in many ways, and maybe you do as well, because it gives me hope. Because I don't know what your life was like before you came to know Christ. I don't know what your life is like right now. But here's what I know is this gal, Rahab, who's known forever in the Bible as Rahab the harlot, is mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith is mentioned by James as an example of a woman who put her faith into practice, faith with deeds. And in Matthew chapter one, this Rahab the harlot is in the very genealogy of Jesus our Lord. And what does that say? It's not how you start, it's how you finish. And so whether you're Rahab the harlot today, whether your high school years were Rahab the harlot, uh, regardless of what your past might be, we serve a God who is rewriting our stories and, and he intersects her life and forever changes her to where she's captured in scripture, not as Rahab the harlot, but it's just Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And so we saw all of that happening last week. And as you look at chapter three, verse one, it's kind of like, well, meanwhile, back in the camp and we're with Joshua and the people of God, and they are going to now move towards the Jordan and prepare to cross. In verse one, Joshua now rose early in the morning he and all the sons of Israel, they set out from a city called Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, and they lodged there now before they crossed. Now glance down to verse 15, how significant was, how high was this mighty Jordan River? And if you notice in verse 15, the Jordan overflows all its banks in all the days of the harvest. So in several situations, this one being one, we've seen some before, we're gonna see them after, God is constantly stacking the deck against himself to make sure that when he does the impossible, you know that it wasn't humankind that did it, it was God. And so God is, is in many ways, even in this Jordan River crossing, setting up the impossible, the, the waters of the Jordan are at flood level. So this is not like a creek, as they call it in Alabama. This is a, this is a river flowing with water, and, uh, and so now they're camping before it, looking across. They're at this point about six miles from Jericho, and this battle of crossing this Jordan, this battle of taking the land, this battle of doing what God asked them to do will be God's battle. This is not about them. This is not about their power and might. This is about the faithfulness of God, and it says in verse two, at the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp and they commanded the people and they said, look, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it as it should have been carried, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Which begs the question, what the heck is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, if you're familiar with some of the Old Testament, you see that all the way back in Exodus chapter 25, Moses had led the people out of Egypt. They're now wandering in the wilderness, and they're wondering, how do, we, how do we worship God? Where do we go? Like, you came to the North Campus, but where, where do they go? And so God said, we'll build a tabernacle, this, this like bargain, you know, party rentals kind of tent structure. It'll be mobile. 
and, uh, and there was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And so if you woke up in the morning and the cloud was over there, then you packed up and you followed the cloud. And if the cloud stopped, that's where you'd set up this tabernacle. And inside of the tabernacle was this thing called, it was basically a box called the Ark of the Covenant. A little over, well, almost four feet wide by about two and a half feet, well, four feet long by two and a half feet wide. And what was inside of this ark, according to the scriptures, is three significant things. One would be a jar of manna, which was the little bread-like you know, bagel that God threw out for the people early morning. Uh, that's in Exodus 16. The other was Aaron, the, the uh, priest's rod, his staff, if you will, that had budded. That was according to number 17. And then the Ten Commandments from Exodus 25. Now, now they were there. Now, the significance of the ark is that's where the presence of God sort of descended and dwelled. So when Moses went in to meet with God, he went into the tabernacle and behind a curtain was this Ark of the Covenant. The top of it was called the mercy seat and it was like the the location of where God dwelled with the people, which is what made it pretty significant. Now, what's fascinating about that is why then this Ark? Well, if you, if you look at verses two and three, again, after three days, the officers now go through the midst of the people and they say, look, when you see the ark of the Lord go, carried by the Levitical priests, then you go. Why the ark? God goes first. This conquest is not about the people having a SEAL Team 6 that were super brave, that somehow defeated the enemy. No, this is about, hey, God's going first. And so that you know it's God, we're gonna send the ark of the covenant carried by unarmed priests. So you're gonna cross the Jordan into the land of the enemy uh, and the unarmed priests go first. And when you see them go, then you go. And so now verse four, however, when you do go, be careful that you do not get too close to the very presence of God. He is with you, but you better keep your distance. In fact, look at verse four. However, there shall be between you and the, the ark, um, a distance of 2,000 cubits by measure. Well, what the heck is that? Well, it's a little over half a mile. So God's gonna go before you carrying the ark of the covenant, the Levitical priests carrying it. The presence of God will be with you, but you better stay a little over half a mile away. So you can get close, but not too close. And, and don't come near it. Uh, in fact, uh, don't come near it that you may know uh, the way by which you shall go, for you shall not pa- pass by this way before. Don't, don't get too close. Don't, don't try to, to get too close to the presence of God. That, that might go really bad for you. The question is why? Like I thought God was with us. I thought God was like, could, could we not be with him? And, and we need to remember his attributes. God's attributes is that he is perfectly holy. And so a holy God and an unholy people cannot cannot have proximity together, and so God's gonna go before them, and these people are staying at a distance. What happened if they tried to close that distance? Well, it it happens a couple of times throughout your Old Testament that the people of God go, yeah, 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 I know God said don't come too close, but I'm curious. Once it happened in Exodus chapter 19, and Moses goes to receive the law of God, and and he tells the people over and over again, don't come near, don't come near, don't come near, because if you do, I'm gonna kill you. I mean, it's that serious. In Leviticus chapter 10, you've got two guys with terrible names, Nadab and Abihu, who offering the incense offering before the Lord use like tablespoons instead of teaspoons. They mismeasure the incense offering and God takes their life. You've got in um, 
the story of David. David is transporting the ark in uh, 1 Chronicles 13, taking the ark into Jerusalem. They're carrying it on like a U-Haul dolly, and uh, it gets upset. The ark does. It starts to fall over. This guy named Uzzah just, just touches the ark just to make sure it doesn't tip over. God takes his life. The point is this. God is terrifying. And you don't just go, yeah, 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 I know God said, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I want. And so God's saying, look, I'm going to go before you. I'm with you, but you better stay a little bit over a half a mile away. And so that's what's happening here. And so Joshua says to the people, okay, look, with that in mind, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. What does Joshua know? He just tipped his hand. Now, not, not tomorrow, I'm going to do awesome things. Not tomorrow, follow the commanders, they're going to do awesome things. He goes, no, tomorrow, the Lord is going to do wonders among you. So consecrate yourself, set yourself apart, make yourself holy. And so Joshua speaks to the priests and he says, okay, take up the ark, cross over ahead of the people. And so they took up the ark and they went ahead of the people. And then God gives Joshua in verse 7 kind of a special word of encouragement. Remember in chapter one, three times God came to Joshua and said, be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous. Why? Because he's scared to death. Because he's following Moses, who was like the goat in your Old Testament, right? And so it's like, just be, be strong and courageous. Look what he says to him in verse seven. The Lord says to Joshua, this is the day that I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. We just imagine as a leader this kind of assurance from the Lord. And so uh, I will be with you as I was with Moses. And so you shall, verse 8, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant now, the ones that you just sent out into the water, that when they come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, that they should stand in the Jordan. So these priests that are carrying the ark, they're not in a hurry. This isn't like uh, the, the land rush moving west when you had a covered wagon and you went to cross a river and you just put the throttle down knowing we cannot get stuck here. We got to make it through. No, no, no. These priests casually are going to walk into the Jordan River. Toes hit the water. Water's going to part. And when they get in the middle, middle they're just going to stop carrying the ark of the covenant. They're just going to stand there. Until the people go by. Question, how long do you think it took for somewhere between a million to 2.5 million people to cross the Jordan River? I mean, let's just say these guys are standing there for a while, probably standing in shifts, right? Guy starts to tap out, another guy steps in. Point is, this is not a, a quick thing. And so in, uh, in verse uh, nine, he says, Joshua said to the sons of Israel, now come here. Hear the word of the Lord your God. Joshua said, uh, by this you will know that the living God is among you and that he will, assure, he will assuredly dispossess from before you all the people living in the land, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. I know all the ites. It's, it's confusing. A bunch of different people that are in the land. And he goes, the Lord is going to dispossess those people that are in there. And... Uh, know for sure God is going to be now with you in this process. And so we're going to talk more about this uh, in the weeks to come because there's a conquest that begins to happen. And so these people now go into the land and literally dispossess those who are living in the land 
uh, from their homes, and that can feel very harsh. Keep in mind, this, this land was already promised to Abraham and his descendants. These people are living out what God had originally called them to do, and part of the problem is it was a spiritual issue because the people that were living in the land worshiped other gods. And in fact, Psalm 106 put it this way, that they mingled with the nations and learned their practices. They served their idols that became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. There were two deities, Chemosh and Molech, and you would offer your firstborn child on the scalding, burning hands of the deity as an offering to appease it. That's what they're dealing with. We'll talk more about that as we get to it in a couple of weeks. But if you look at verse 11, so now behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, it crosses ahead of you onto the Jordan, and it says, now then, take for yourselves 12 men from each tribe, uh, and head in, and in verse 13, it should come about that when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord um, of all the earth rest on the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan will be cut off, they will part, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. And so in some ways, you've got Red Sea crossing, part two. Just like Moses parted the sea, you've got now Joshua parting the Jordan because God just said in verse seven, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And then in verses 14 and following, when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water and the Jordan, which was overflowing in the days of the harvest, the waters, verse 16, which were flowing down from above, and rose up in one heap a great distance away from a city called Adam to a city called Zarathon. That's some 20 miles upriver. The point is that the waters didn't just like shut off in a trickle. 20 miles upriver, it just shut off, stopped to the point that uh, the waters above were shut off and the people crossed now opposite Jericho. And you say, was that just like a freak of nature? Or was it just like, I don't know. Did a goat fall in the river and block it? You know, if you look at verse 17, the priest that carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on what kind of ground? Dry ground. In the middle of the Jordan, while all of the people crossed on dry ground. This is not a, a, some sort of weather phenomenon. This is God miraculously shutting off the valves of a river 20 miles upstream, drying the ground instantly that the people of God could walk on, just like God did with Moses, God did with Joshua. What an amazing, amazing thing, until all the nation had crossed. Now, you've been to a stadium or a concert or a game, and you're looking at your watch at halftime going, hey, maybe I should go now, because the traffic otherwise is just gonna be crazy, right? I just want you to envision all of these somewhere between one and 2.5 million people. It's like double Fresno and Clovis's population all together at one time trying to cross. This was a serious movement of people. And so it's, it's easy to see in this text that God was with them, that God was going before them. God was doing amazing things. They saw the power of God. It was evident that God was with them because the Red Sea parted and you're walking across the Jordan River on dry ground. So our faithful God was with them. The question that I wanna sort of ask and see if we can answer tonight is I, I see that God was with them. 
but is he with us? I see that God was with them because there's a Red Sea crossing, there's a, a Jordan River crossing, but I don't know about you, I've never seen a sea part. I've never witnessed a river part. Is God, is God still with us? Are, are we still his people? Are we with God? And, and in many ways, if you think about all that Moses and, and Joshua experienced, I've often replayed this sort of like fic, fictional interaction, like one day, Lord willing, years from now when we go to glory and, and if, if it's possible to, to like have a conversation with somebody, I'd kind of like to sit and have a coffee with Moses. I go, dude, what was it like, man? I mean, the plagues, that's crazy. The Red Sea, how did you feel in that moment as a leader when all these people are behind you and here comes Pharaoh? What was it like? Or to sit with Joshua and say, Joshua, be strong and courageous. What was that like to part the Jordan River? I mean, you saw the river part. You saw incredible delivering, deliverances of God. Here in, in a couple of chapters, you, you saw Jer the walls of Jericho fall. Like, what was it like? God was with you. That was amazing, right? And here's the irony. In this interaction, one of the things that strikes me is I would not be surprised if mid-sentence both Moses and Joshua stop you, follower of Jesus who's now in glory, and goes, no, 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 no. Yes, God was with us, but God was with you. God was in you. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. What was that like? See, we tend to think at the miraculous, the Red Sea parting and the Jordan River crossing. We go, oh, that would be amazing. I'd love to see that. The people, the men and women who experienced that in your Bible, in your Old Testament, never experienced anything like you and I experience. They don't even have a category for the idea of God being with them and in them. When, when Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River, God is with them over a half a mile away. You can cross and my presence is here, but don't get too close or I might take your life. Something different has happened in our life. And I want to talk a little bit about that. If you're looking for a phrase, I would call it the pneumatological reality of our faith. It's a big 50 cent way of explaining the presence of God with us and in us. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. The word pneuma means breath, wind, or spirit. Pneumatology is the study of the spirit. The pneumatological reality of our faith is when we trusted Christ, something happened. See, the real miracle is not the Red Sea or the Jordan River crossing. The real miracle is how can a holy God indwell a sinful us? Because I don't know if you realize that or not, you're a hot mess. As am I. How can a holy God indwell a sinful us? And something happened as it relates to the gospel. So, so talking about pneumatology, our God is a triune God. It's one of the most difficult theological concepts to explain, that we serve one God who is in three persons. He does not evidence himself in three different persons. He is fully distinct as three persons and yet fully unified as one God. And the Bible simply communicates that as fact. Here's the thing about the Bible that is in some ways drives me nuts, but is also encouraging. God does not apologize for blowing our little minds, right? And so we, we serve a triune God. How, how do we know that? Well, we know, for example, in the creation account, the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created. 
We also know in John 1 and Colossians 1, Jesus says, nothing came into being that has come into being but through me. And then we see in verse 2 of Genesis 1 that the Spirit of God is hovering over this creation. Father, Son, and Spirit all now claiming presence and influence over creation. So, So we have a God who is one God in three persons. And we see the Spirit of God all throughout your Old Testament. So the, the book of Judges, by the way, has a handful of accounts. A guy named Gideon, who's threshing wheat in the wine press. God says to him, rise, valiant warrior, even though he's hiding from his enemies. And the spirit of God would come upon him. He'd wreck shop on a bunch of people, and then the spirit would be taken. Uh, another guy would be Jephthah. Spirit of God would come, spirit would be taken. The most popular is Samson. Samson would be doing his thing. All of a sudden, spirit of God would come upon him. And without turning green and turning into the Hulk, he would just grab a jawbone of a donkey, whoop up on a thousand dudes, and then the Spirit of God would be taken. Now, we know that the Spirit of God was given and taken because David tells us in the Psalms. So, in fact, in Psalm uh, chapter 51, David says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. See, David knew the Spirit of God would come and the Spirit of God would be taken. And it wasn't a punishment per se. It was just not a permanent indwelling of the Spirit. Then when the New Testament comes, Jesus starts talking crazy. Jesus starts saying things like this in John 14. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive But because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. That's game changer. Jesus is saying, look, the spirit of God, the spirit of the triune God almighty is not only going to be with you like he was with Moses and Joshua. Oh no, he's going to be in you. And the disciples were like, wait, I'm sorry, what? And he goes on, he goes, he, he will, uh, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Jesus is saying the spirit of God, because Jesus, of course, is God, and the spirit is God, I will come to you, and I will be not just with you, but in you. John 16, 7, he goes, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I, Jesus, go away. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go away, I will send him. So Jesus is saying, look, I can be in one place at one time. And so it's, it's really good that I ascend to the Father. Because if I don't ascend to the Father, then the Spirit is not given to be with you and in you. But if I go to the Father, now I can be with you and in you, plural. And then comes Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2 is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is now poured out upon believers And the fruit of the gospel is that how can a holy God indwell a fallen us? The answer is without Jesus, he can't. But the beauty of the gospel is that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That the spirit of God can dwell inside of us because all of the sins you've ever committed, ever thought about committing, ever accidentally committed, everything was paid for at the cross so that when the spirit of God comes to live within us, it's holiness living in in holiness because of Christ. That's not to say we don't have flesh, it's simply to say the only way the spirit can be with us and in us is because of the gospel. Listen to how Ephesians 1 says it. 
In Christ, or in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, which means he is, if you are in Christ, he is not only with you, he is in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells with you and in you? He's in you. He's with us. So the pneumatological reality of our faith is God has done something even more miraculous than the Red Sea and the Jordan. God has chosen to dwell with us. And can you be a believer and not have the spirit of God? Well, Romans is going to tell us no. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not of the flesh, but of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So for every single believer, every Christian, everyone who has embraced the gospel, Christ, the spirit of God has come, and he is now, he is now in us. Now, what, what's the significance of that? Well, what it means is that the same God who spoke the world into existence by his power, the same God who parted the Red Sea and the Jordan River, that same powerful God is actually in you. And one of the things that he has accomplished by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is sort of with bolt cutters cutting the chains of mastery to sin, and he's freeing you to now live by the power of his spirit that is in us. And he's with us forever. John 14, 6 said that a helper that will be given to us will be with us forever, which means it cannot, like David, be taken from you. See, some people think, oh, when I'm doing good, yes, God's with me. But when I suck, oh, he's not with me. And I just want you to know, God, God is with you in the awesome and the awful. His presence is never taken from you. He's always with you. And the Spirit is the one that convicts, and the Spirit is the one that encourages you to repent, and the Spirit is the one who meets you in the awfulness and reminds you you need a Savior. It's a Spirit that when we blow it, it's like, yes, that's why you still need Christ. Because you can choose to live on your own power opposed to living by the power of God. And so just like Joshua and the people of God had to sort of learn how to trust God to follow him and to yield to his leading. That is the journey of the Christian life. Is this already not yet that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, but you still live in a bag of flesh? That, that you're filled with the Holy Spirit and he is with you and in you, but you still have to choose which you will obey. Will you, will you choose to obey the flesh or choose to obey the work of the Spirit in your life? That's why in Galatians chapter 5, Paul, talking to the church in Galatia about the flesh, says if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, how do, how do, how do we do that? The word walk in that passage is the word, para, or the, the word peripateo. It means to walk along with. It means to open to the presence of God in your life. Now, can I just be candid about something? It's really easy to get wonky when you talk about the Holy Spirit. People are like, woohoo, let's go. Okay, spirit and heart, Bible in hand. Let's keep the Bible in hand because the Bible is what tells us how the spirit operates. People go, oh, I'm in the spirit, and they start going crazy. I'm like, no, you're, you're acting weird. <laughs> and so how, how do we, though, open to the spirit, to walk by the spirit? And then he says in verse 25 of that Galatians passage, um, 
having belonged, since you belong to Christ, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since you live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. It's a different word. It's the word stoikao, which means to bring your life into alignment. Here's the point. When we read these passages about burning bush and exodus and plagues and Red Sea parting and Jordan River crossing, and we're like, what about me, God? What's going on? He is with you and in you. What a, it's a much more profound miracle that God is with you. Always. How can we learn to open to that? To say, God, you're with me right now while I'm driving. You're with me right now at the job I hate. You're with me right now as I, I would never shake my baby. But I certainly know why people do, okay? In this moment, you're here, you're with me. And so, God, I want to open to you. So when Jesus, in John chapter 3, talking to a religious guy who's mechanizing his faith, and Jesus says, no, 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 you need to be born again. Look, look at the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. Like yesterday, when it was perfectly calm at lunch, right? Or Tuesday even, perfectly calm at lunch. And then whatever happened, okay? You don't know where it's coming or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. There's a sense that to live the Christian life in fullness and joy is to embrace the miracle that he is with me and to learn how to raise our proverbial sails to just catch what God is doing and just join him in it. Because by the way, a lot easier to do that than to try to walk upstream. How about just raise our sails, learn to join God in whatever God is doing and, and that in many ways is the miracle. Now to be clear, I don't think this Joshua passage teaches about the um, pneumatological reality of our faith. I think these people are learning how to trust God and how to be with God. I'm just making the observation that as these people are with God, and that seems amazing, the even more amazing thing is that we are not just with God, but he is with us and in us. And could we as the people of God, spirit in, in heart, Bible in hand, learn how to be a people who recognize the even greater miracle that a holy God, by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in him, chooses not to be over a half a mile away demonstrating his awesomeness. He chooses to be with you in the awesome and the awful and invites us to participate in life with him. Amen? Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for your word and for the reality of the spirit of God in us because we know this, that apart from you, we could do nothing that in our flesh we are incapable of pleasing you. Our flesh is not even able to do it, but thankfully, you only paid for sin, but you have, you have filled us with your spirit that we might delight in life with you. So yes, thank you for the Red Sea and thank you for the Jordan that parted, but even more, thank you for the rich deposit of the spirit of God in our hearts. And so, God, help us to, to walk with you, to be obedient to you, and to allow the Spirit of God to stir, drive us, call us into life of faith with you. And we'll thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining the Well Community Church Podcast. Be sure to check out thewellcommunity.org or our app, The Well Fresno, for more information on us, ways to connect, service times, and locations.